From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 162 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing pretty okay. How are you, Michael? Doing all right. You know, um, our we actually had a little sunlight today, which was nice out because um, with all the wildfires that are surrounding our area, our air quality has been terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had ash falling from the sky, smoke to the ground. Some of my garden plants were starting to yellow and wilt because there was no sun. So, um, that's, that's something else. (laughs) Yeah. I I was shocked. So, um, anyway, but, uh, so hopefully we have a Delta breeze now. And so that's pushed out some of the smoke, but, um, yeah, I had to wear an N95 mask just to go out and, you know, water the garden because it was so bad. That's, uh, I mean, wildfires that they, they genuinely scare me. So never. You know, the closest I've been is being at Disneyland while they've been close enough by to sprinkle ashes throughout the park mm-hmm. as well, too. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it just seems like they engulf everything that they cross paths with. So definitely, definitely scary, scary stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, we're safe. So anyway, you know, over the weekend... I rewatched the live-action um, Beauty and the Beast film on Disney+. Plus. I, I thought and, we were going to talk about good news. And, you know, what was weird was that this is my second time watching it. And, you know, I wasn't impressed with it the first time. I liked it more the second time. And I don't know why. But um, I actually enjoyed it. I even smiled at a few scenes. So, uh, anyway, I, I don't know. It's. I still don't think it's one of the best of the remakes, but I. I don't know. I, I found it pleasant. So, well, I. I mean, you're allowed to feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's okay. allowed to feel that way who wants to. Just uh, no. In my eyes, you'll always be wrong for that. But that's okay. No, that's fine. I still haven't brought myself to watch you know Maleficent again or anything like that. <laughs> but um, but there are some things I'm looking forward to on Disney Plus in September. You know, on September 1st, the 2015 live-action Cinderella is coming on. And that is my favorite of all the live-action remakes. I actually I just, think I, I just watched film. a little bit of that the other night. So it was one of those... Uh, one of those sit down and scroll through the TV and just... It was on, and so just watched a little bit of it, and then next thing I knew, I was watching, you know, 
75% of the movie. So it's, uh, it, it still hooks me mm-hmm. all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, see where I'm, I'm having the interior of the house repaired and painted. So, you know, slowly packing up the house. And so all of my Blu-rays, DVDs are in boxes. So now I have to rely on streaming completely. Mm. So, uh, cause I have this film, but I have to wait now until it's on Disney plus to watch it on September 4th. Mulan is coming. We talked about that. I, the Wolverine and I've never seen any of the Wolverine films. So I thought I'll watch that, but um, and then they're, they're doing Ancient China from Above, and like I talked previously, because I've been to China with Dreams Unlimited Travel, um, I watch whatever's on about China. Yeah, and then there's a Disney short, Trick or Treat. It's coming out on that same day. That, so of course, I mean, I'm going to watch that. That made me so happy when I saw it pop up on the list because I mm-hmm. was, I I was actually thinking that back when they released the august list that maybe it would have popped up on the august list and when it didn't i was like okay well you know it's with disney halloween starts in august not (laughs) not necessarily september but then again uh it's in california halloween always started in september anyway so i guess we should expect that for for other disney disney uh facets of the company but uh yeah, I was I was really pleasantly surprised with seeing Trick or Treat. It is it is a must watch during the Halloween season. Yes, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. September 11th is Christopher Robin, and I like that film. I thought it was cute. The car chase I thought could have been shorter, but otherwise, I really like it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely one of the more positive. Uh, live action movies to come out as of uh, recent years with Disney. So I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. It's September 18th. This is one Carol and I saw years ago. I think we went with the children ever after a Cinderella story. Is this the one with Drew Barrymore? I mm-hmm. think that is. And I really liked it. I remember. So it's funny that they have two Cinderella films that they're releasing. It is. Uh, I haven't um, watched it since I, I mean, I was a kid when I watched it the last time. And I also, you know, I, my sister is two years older than me. And when this came out, she was like the target audience for this movie. So I know we had it on VHS and I know that I despised it because it was one (laughs) of the, it was one of the ones that she would watch all the time. And even beyond that, it was like, it was one of those uh, one of those movies that I feel like Fox put it on every single VHS trailer, like in front of before all the movies. And you know, back in those days, you couldn't just skip them; you had to you could fast forward through it, or you just had to watch through. So we would just watch through it. And I like I have I will until the day I die, I will have the Drew Barrymore sing just breathe in my head over and over and over again because it's like all I can remember from growing up. So I need to watch it as an adult. <laughs> yeah. And then on the same date, they're releasing a documentary, I guess, Notre Dame Race Against the Inferno. And I saw that poor cathedral, you know, when I, again, yeah. with Dreams of Limited Travel, my London Paris trip with them. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's when you see it in person, it's worse than any photo shows you. So I'm just interested in, in this one. 
September 25th, really excited. Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom. My favorite Walt Disney World Park. I'm so excited. I'm literally looking forward to this series. And then they're releasing Disney Nature Oceans. And I love all the Disney Nature, um, you know, films. And then I'm looking forward to the continuation of the One Day Disney series. I've really enjoyed it. I'm behind on it, but I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you're looking forward to? Uh, no, I think uh, my big ones for, for this month was uh, Trick or Treat. And then I, I am interested in the Notre Dame, uh, that whatever kind of documentary it is on that. Because, uh, you know, it's it's it feels like I haven't seen a lot about it since everything happened with it. So I'm, I'm interested in what the angle is going to be from it. Well, if you listen to our Walt Disney World show, you know that we are having a Labor Day marathon that that is for, um, and, and it's, it's uh, benefits give kids the world. And this time, we are doing a special segment, Connecting with Walt segment. It's going to be at approximately 3.15 to 4 o'clock. And Craig, do you want to share with our listeners a little more about what the Labor Day Marathon yeah, is? The Labor Day Marathon is a it's all in support of Give Kids the World. So they reached out to us and said, "Hey, we could we could really use some help spreading the word about Give Kids the World during this time." Like, you know, as if we didn't all already, you know, constantly try to to bring them up as much as possible, but uh, they they are still really struggling with everything that's happening right now because of Make-A-Wish not granting wishes for Walt Disney World at this time. So because of that, uh, you know, the the village here in Florida is just completely shuttered down and, and not being used. And uh, so there's obviously always stuff that can be be put money that can be put towards making the village a better experience for kids but also with this it's when they are ready to start taking back families they want to make sure that they are good to go that it can financially happen that every they have staff in place to make sure that it can happen and you know they just want to be prepared to start making dreams come true again so it's everything we're doing with the marathon show is is just to support them and a hundred percent of uh, any donations that are made or proceeds from the auction that's happening are going uh, directly towards them. And on top of that too, you don't have to worry if you've watched in the past on our shows and such, you, you might've asked, we might've heard us ask for donations and such. That's not happening this time. Give kids the world has kind of, uh, they've, they've, created a treasure trove of collectibles and stuff that they are actually going to be auctioning off themselves and they're taking care of all of that so we're just going to provide 12 hours of entertainment uh throughout the day to to make you happy from wherever you are at home or I don't I don't know where people will be watching from but wherever you're watching from we are going to be there to entertain you and hopefully you'll you'll check out the auction that's going along with it too to to help us raise some money for a great cause and and yeah the auction's going to kick off on September 1st that is a Tuesday I believe it's uh next Tuesday this coming Tuesday uh and with with that being said 
It'll kick off that day, and then on Monday, September 7th, on Labor Day, that will be the day of the marathon show, and and that will be the end of the auction as well, too. So that way, when we close off that auction at night, we can announce our, our final tally, something that we, we don't usually get to do because a lot of times when we do these marathon shows with the auctions, we we do it on the very first day and kick off the excitement but this time around we we want to be able to know and have that extra level of excitement with it so we hope everyone tunes in we hope you check out the auction and see if there's something you 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 want to bid on so maybe you can take it home and and donate to a good cause and yeah just just get some more joy in this time so i know a lot of people Mm -hmm. still aren't doing extremely well and hopefully hopefully we'll will provide some some fun yeah great yeah and tune in to watch our connecting with Walt segment just as a little hint we are going to celebrate disneyland's 65th anniversary in that segment we are going to have a disney historian on someone who's been on the show to talk about some of the extinct attractions that um you may not even have heard about, but ones I've experienced. So we're going to talk about those um, to celebrate Disneyland's 65th anniversary. So hope you hope you'll tune in for it. Uh, just a quick reminder about story time with Michael. We're bringing it back, and uh, we have two interested artists, and I know Craig has reached out to them, so we're waiting to hear back. We I'll be reading. Um, some stories I've selected from the Project Gutenberg site, the Andrew Lang's, um, um, you know, Little Blue Fairy book, Sleeping Beauty in the Woods, Cinderella, The Little Glass Slipper, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, The Brave Little Tailor. And if, and we need artists to help us illustrate the story. So we have something to show you as I share these stories and then talk a little about how Walt Disney and his artists and animators and story um, sto- story writers adapted them. So um, if you're interested, please email me and Craig and let us know, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. We'll get back to you. Okay. Well, for the last few weeks, we've recommended that you watch Man in Space and Mars and Beyond on Disney Plus because we plan to talk about them. And as a lead up, we invited Disney historian Todd James Pierce to be a guest on the show to talk about Disney animator and legend Ward Kimball, who's one of Walt's nine old men and the producer, director and writer of the Disneyland television show Man in Space series. And in this episode, we are going to begin our look back to that historic series. First, let's start at the very beginning of Walt Disney's television series. The American Broadcasting Network, we all know it as ABC, debuted on April 19, 1948, after the success of the ABC radio network that was still extremely popular at that time. However, the television network did not enjoy the same success, and after one year was nearly bankrupt. In 1950, in an effort to increase the network's revenue and popularity, ABC's president, Robert Kintner, worked hard to secure a contract with Walt Disney for a weekly television show. Now, at that time, within the industry, ABC was referred to as the almost broadcasting company because of its lack of affiliates. 
And comedian Milton Berle, you have to Google him, kids, said, If the Russians ever drop a bomb, let's all run over to ABC because they've never had a hit. Now, the first rumors of a deal between ABC and Walt Disney arose in March 1954, and an official announcement about the agreement was made on April 2nd, 1954. And in his announcement, ABC president Robert Kittner said, Walt Disney is undoubtedly the greatest creative force in the entertainment field today. His entrance into TV marks a major and historical step forward for the industry. ABC is very proud of the privilege of working with the Disney organization, which will bring a new conception to television. When Walt Disney's Disneyland television series debuted on October 27, 1954, it was the first ABC television series to make it into the top 10 most watched programs. Up to this time, ABC didn't have a show in the top 25 most watched programs. In an interview, Walt Disney said, I saw that if I was ever going to have my park, here at last was a way to tell millions of people about it with TV. TV was the start of Disneyland. After the contract was signed, Walt had some decisions to make. What would be the format of the series? Who would create the series, since most of Walt's creative talent was assigned to work on creating Disneyland? How would Walt allay the fears of other movie studios and theater owners that he was still committed to producing new films, and that by developing a television series, he wasn't going to steal audiences away from the cinemas? Storyman Bill Cottrell wrote a memo suggesting four concepts for the series, and they were titled The Walt Disney Show, The Mickey Mouse Club TV Show, The True Life Adventures TV Show, and The World of Tomorrow. And this would have combined live action and animation, focusing on history of man's development of things in the past, plus man's dreams and hopes for future and countless possibilities in the realm of chemistry, physics, mathematics, astronomy, time and space. It took a month for Walt and his team to come up with an idea of an anthology series, which would allow different teams to work on different segments simultaneously. The show would be split into segments that reflected the different realms of Walt's park so that Disneyland the TV show and Disneyland the park would be the same. The plan was for the Fantasyland episodes to feature some of Disney's animated shorts that had been shown in theaters. Adventureland episodes would feature segments from the True Life Adventure films. Frontierland episodes would be live-action segments that could be filmed quickly since it was easy to find costuming sets and actors due to the popularity of westerns at that time. The Tomorrowland episodes posed a problem because the studio had not produced any futuristic cartoons or films that could be reused. So Walt assigned director Jack Kinney who had worked on developing the History of Aviation segment for the 1943 film Victory Through Air Power to develop an episode about the history of flight. 
and Ward Kimball, who had shown an interest in the latest scientific developments, was assigned to develop an episode about atomic energy with the tentative title From Adam to Atom. By April 1954, the focus of the Tomorrowland episodes began to shift to emphasize what Walt said was man's curiosity about the stars, the history of rockets, and a simulated trip to the stars. Although Kinney had developed a six-hour program titled The History of Outer Space, Going from Icarus to Outer Space, when he learned Ward Kimball had been promoted to director and was assigned to develop a program tentatively titled Rockets and Space. Walt was so intrigued with the material on outer space that Kinney knew his days at the studio were numbered, and he left in March 1958 to start his own animation studio. But before he left, he did work on the 1957 Disneyland episode Man in Flight that borrowed heavily from the animation in Victory Through Air Power with new narration. On April 17, 1954, Walt Disney met with Ward Kimball and two writers, Charlie Shows and Bill Boshi, about the program. Walt cautioned them to keep the serious stuff separate and to watch that the material doesn't get corny. He stated this parallels True Life Adventures, facts, and opening up this world to the people. He told them that he planned to build a rocket to the moon attraction at Disneyland, and he really wanted to give the people the feeling of a trip to the moon. As Walt left the room at the end of the meeting, he was very enthusiastic about the project. On his way out, he stopped at the desk, ripped off a blank sheet of note paper, handed it to Ward Kimball, and said, Write your own ticket. Bill Boshi recalled that Harry Title was standing there when Walt said that and his eyes just about dropped out of his head because Walt had never said anything like that. I would imagine that that um, probably went to Ward Kimball's head just a bit based on what James Todd Pierce told us about him. At a May 14th, 1954 meeting... Walt looked at the conference room walls covered with illustrations and notes for the project, and he believed there was enough material for two shows. He also planned to edit those shows together for theatrical release in foreign markets to regain some of the expense of creating these shows. Segments of the other two shows, Conquest of the Weather and Artificial Satellite, ended up being combined in the 1959 theatrical featurette Eyes in Outer Space, and that was directed by Ward Kimball. When Ward Kimball started working on his first Tomorrowland episode about rockets in outer space, he saw a series of articles that Collier magazine had started in March 1952. Now, Collier's was a popular and highly respected magazine for its authenticity for 70 years. The series of articles were written by scientists and other experts like Dr. Werner von Braun, Willie Ley, and Heinz Haber. The articles were about the possibility of spaceflight in the near future. 
The articles delved into topics like spacecraft and spacesuits, exploring Mars, and the legalities of who owns the universe. The articles are written in clear layman's terms rather than scientific babble, and were optimistic and conservative about the possibilities of exploring the universe. The articles were accompanied with illustrations by Chelsea Bonstell, Fred Freeman, and Rolf Klepp. The series was very popular, and each one was enthusiastically read by three to four million people. Ward Kimball was inspired by these articles in Collier Magazine, and this is what was printed. In March 22, 1952, Will Man Will Conquer Space Soon, and this was a collection of eight articles. October 18, 1952, Man on the Moon, The Journey and Inside the Moonship. So that was three articles. On October 25th, 1952, they had two articles, Man on the Moon and Inside the Lunar Base. February 28th, 1952, one article, World's First Space Suit. March 7th, 1953, they had an article, Testing Men in Space. March 14th, 1953, the article was How Man Will Meet Emergency in Space. June 27, 1953, published an article, Baby Space Station. And on April 30, 1954, there were two articles, Can We Get to Mars? and Is There Life on Mars? So from these titles, if you've watched the Man in Space series completely, you can see how um, these, these articles inspired um, that series. Now, Ward consulted these issues and, with Walt Disney's approval, brought in some of the writers of the articles to assist with the shows. And in April 1954, Willie Lay was hired on to the project with a weekly salary. Lay had written many books about man flight to the moon, which is why Ward contacted him. And Lay would provide the scientific facts for the episode. And he was also the one who suggested that Ward get in touch with Werner von Braun. As it turned out, Werner von Braun had an agent who negotiated salaries as a speaker and for appearances at other events. Therefore, Werner von Braun was contacted by the Walt Disney Studios Talent Department. Von Braun was also the chief of the United States Army's Guided Missile Development Division at the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, he was also a friend of Willie Lay's, and Lay had contacted him after being hired by the studio to let him know that they would be using Von Braun's four-stage rocket ship design in the episodes. Another writer of the Collier's Magazine articles who was hired for the project was Heinz Haber. He had spent five years as a research scientist at the U.S. Air Force School of Aviation at UCLA. And Haber took a year-long leave of absence from the university to work on several Disney projects, including Our Friend the Atom. And Von Braun and Haber were paid consultant fees since they were unable or unavailable to work on the project full-time. Von Braun was paid $6,500 for his work as a consultant and for his television appearances. And I think today that's like $72,000 or so. so. So quite a bit of money back in the day. 
Von Braun immediately accepted the offer to be a consultant on the project because no one in the United States government seemed interested in his ideas. He realized that there were 15 million Americans with television sets, and this was a great opportunity to sell the American people on the exploration of space. And Von Braun would provide the designs for rockets and satellites for the shows. And as they worked together on the project, Ward Kimball and Werner Von Braun developed a friendship that lasted for many years after the episode aired. Now, Von Braun's on-camera appearance in Man in Space and the other two episodes represented only a portion of his involvement in the actual production of the three shows. Dr. Hertz. Dr. Ernst Stuhlinger, who had worked with Von Braun since his days in Germany, also worked for the Walt Disney Studio as a technical consultant. And according to Stuhlinger, Von Braun made sure the Disney artists built accurate models of the space vehicles for the three shows. He said, Here, Von Braun was really on home grounds. He provided a wealth of information on technical details from in-orbit fueling operations down to the problems of cooking and eating under weightlessness. He also recalled that many hours of Von Braun devoted to the Disney projects. Von Braun's official duties for the Army often took him to the West Coast to meet with Jupiter and Redstone contractors. And after the meetings, he and Stuhlinger would go to the Walt Disney Studios where they would work into the morning hours with the artists and producers. Jules Verne's science fiction had inspired Werner von Braun when he was young. And years later, von Braun designed the famous World War II V-2 rocket for his native Germany, which, of course, we all know from our history, was used in the terrible Blitzkriegs on England. But he also dreamt of developing vehicles that would propel artificial satellites and men into outer space. In fact, his interest in developing rockets for space exploration, rather than for defense, angered the Gestapo and led to two weeks in a German prison. As World War II ended, von Braun and other German rocket experts surrendered to Allied forces and eventually emigrated from Germany to work for the U.S. Army. Initially signed to Fort Bliss, Texas, the von Braun team was eventually transferred to Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. And on January 31, 1958, the von Braun team used a modified Jupiter-C rocket to launch Explorer 1, America's first orbiting satellite. And two years later, von Braun became director of NASA's new George C. Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, where he and an expanded team would develop the Saturn rockets that launched men to the moon in 1969. Okay. I want to pause here for a moment because whenever we ask listeners to submit questions to us, uh, you know, that Craig and I will answer every single time without fail, we get questions about Walt Disney, Ward Kimball consorting with Werner von Braun and other Nazis in making this series. And people are disturbed by it, and rightly so, especially if they're people who lived through World War II. And keep in mind that 
when this series was being made, World War II was fresh in the minds of every country around the world. Some were still digging out of their ruins of this. So, you know, I understand that people were disturbed. What Von Braun said is that if you had no choice but to join the Nazi party, if you wanted to continue your work. um, And we know that in all regimes, whether they're fascist or communist or Marxist, you're forced to join the party and you're forced to toe the party line. There's only one truth in those kinds of governments. And you can't deviate from those truths. You may not agree with it, but you cannot voice any dissenting opinion because what the party says is the truth. So lots of people were forced to join the Nazi party who did not believe in what the Nazi party stood for. And this is the case with Werner von Braun and many of his associates. They were interested in researching rockets. And unfortunately, their technology was used for evil. And as I mentioned, Werner von Braun tried to fight it and the Gestapo imprisoned him. So that's... So I think that's the perspective that we have to keep in mind as we consider Von Braun and Willie Lay and the others' um, involvement, not only in in uh, the early stages of our space program, but also in their involvement in the Man in Space series. Yeah. It, Craig, do you, have, do you have any thoughts on this? With Von Braun comes a little bit of extra diciness because – even though he didn't necessarily, you know, even though he wasn't necessarily doing a lot of the terrible things that were happening, especially in concentration camps, he's, his program was also being run and being uh, rockets were being built by people who were in concentration camps. And, and so that adds that extra level of just disturbing mm-hmm. behavior behind it that that you know he he knew that his rockets were being built by people who were <clears throat> probably going to die and it's it's just this big moral dilemma in there and and Von Braun, when he was, you know, when he surrendered to the United States Army and slash captured in a way too, you know, it was, it was really already this feud between the, uh, the Russians and the United States. It was already building and Russians were capturing Germans and the United States was also getting ready to do this. And that's, that's partly of, you know that that's part of why when he's brought over like it's not he's being treated differently because they knew that these rockets were developed they knew the technology they knew it was going to be the future they knew it was going to to impact warfare forever beyond what was happening just with putting men into space one day it, both both governments knew 
what the potential was for Rocket. And so you can't bring over the leading expert on rockets and then just imprison them when you're in this already battle with the Russians while you're still fighting alongside them, trying to finish the current war that you're in. And, but then once he's over here, it's kind of like all's forgiven because you're on our team now. And that also doesn't sit well too. It's just, it's a really messy situation and it's hard to watch something like this knowing that he was involved in some really bad things in the past too. But uh, at the same time, it's like you mentioned there, there wasn't, he wasn't in a position to say no, he, he was imprisoned because they thought that he was going to do something ludicrous, like build a plane to escape out of, of the regime and so he his hands were kind of tied in that he had to follow through and he had to keep developing rockets and and he was forced into this position Uh, but a lot of bad also came from that as well too and it's uh every person's gonna feel differently about it 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 does kind of it's bothersome to me watching it Mm -hmm. i will not lie but honestly it's in his situation i'm sure it was i either have to do this or i'm gonna end up with a hole in my head and i'm sure nine out of ten people wouldn't stand up knowing that they were looking death in the face and i'm not saying that's okay but i'm just trying to see maybe that's what he was thinking in his position and that's that's what came of it but uh you know it's regardless him getting to the Americans and and being able to continue research, it obviously put us into space and it, it changed the world in a really massive way. So some good did come from, uh, you know, nothing happening to him in that way. But everything else is, is still just kind of bad. But yeah, yeah, it, it's a complex situation, but I, I don't think that it should be interpreted that somehow Walt Disney and Ward Kimball were consorting with Nazis no. because they worked with Werner von Braun. I, I, and I don't know that they would even condone it because it's just a lot of this stuff, like the, the knowledge on what von Braun was doing in Germany, I'm sure was being held at a, a confidential level in terms of the government. So I'm sure someone in, uh, you know, Walt's position and Ward Kimball, I'm sure they knew that he was an expert, but I doubt that they knew every single little bit of his history. So maybe they knew some stuff, but uh, it's, uh, I'm sure they were told what the government and what Von Braun was allowed to actually tell them. Then when I was a boy, there was a, um, he, I think he was a university professor, but he would sing these um, political commentary songs. His name was Tom Lair. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I have one of his albums. And he, he would do these songs that were um, hilarious. And one of them was on Werner von Braun. And um, and I remember, and he addresses the issue of um, von Braun being a Nazi. And he's and then and he says and, and and he says not she's schmatz he says Werner von Braun and then um 
And then there's another line in it. Once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> anyway. But, uh, and that was written in the 60s. And in the 60s, when, when you know, I was a boy, still, the, um, World War II was still very much alive in the memories of people. Yeah. I All I know is I... In my opinion, Von Braun should be seen as an important part of our space program. Uh, and, you know, that's why he's a part of our Space and Rocket Hall of Fame. But beyond that, like, it, it, he is not, in my opinion, he is not a person that anyone should admire. He probably... Uh, you know, considering he was part of the SS, he probably should have not have been, made it out of Germany at all. Um, it's uh, the fact that, you know, there was, there's been stuff named after him. I, I think that's not even okay too. And hopefully, hopefully a lot of that is, is changed throughout the, the years, but uh, it's, he, he still did serve, some importance to our space program and oh absolutely i I think um i don't think we would have gotten up there in space if it were not for him yeah definitely not not, as soon not as soon yeah we would not have the russians would have definitely would have definitely uh beat us to the moon most likely if, if if we even reached it at all with that but yeah, it's you said it best. It's complex, and yeah, it, it, yeah, it almost just makes me kind of. It, it makes me just feel weird even talking about it. But it's yeah. you know that's uh, that is history in, in some circumstances. It's not all yeah. pleasant, and this is definitely one of those ones that yeah. is not pleasant. No, you're absolutely right. Well, also working on the project was Wethel Rogers, and he he worked in the studio's model shop at this time. And he built the realistic models for the episodes based on sketches by Von Braun that were enhanced by studio artist Ken O'Connor. Harry Tidal was was tasked with obtaining archival film, which was not easy since the United States government had very little, and much of it was obtained by German sources during and after World War II. But through his contacts from World War II, Tidal was able to contact U.S. Air Force Major Mark Miranda with the Air Force Information Services, which controlled 70 million feet of historical film. Tidal was also able to receive film from Douglas Aircraft, the American Rocket Society, Lockheed, our English and French offices, Aerojet, and the British government, and Germany, amongst others. Well, since all the V2s sound the same, the studio was able to obtain sound recordings courtesy of White Sands Proving Grounds because many of these films were silent. Man in Space was not just the title of the first episode, but was used as the title for the series of three episodes that would eventually air. Each episode followed the same format. The first segment would present the early history of the episode's subject, and then this would be followed by discussions with experts, and then finally the episode would end with an animated segment in a serious, illustrative style. 
In an interview, Ward Kimball said the episodes weren't science fiction. We called them science factual because we were dealing with knowledge. Under the guidance of producer, director, and co-writer Ward Kimball, who handled the same responsibilities for all three shows, Man in Space aired on March 9, 1955. Although, <laughs> in an interview that I read, Ward Kimball said that he didn't he was already listed as producer director and he said he had written all the episodes himself, but he didn't want to be listed as producer director and writer. So he sort of threw some credit to another writer who really didn't do much for the show. And he regretted it (laughs) because that writer started to get some plum assignments from Walt and um, that apparently annoyed Ward. The episode, because of Walt's insistence on shooting it in color and not skimping on quality, had cost approximately $250,000 to produce. This is, remember, 1954 money. This is an enormous amount of money for an hour-long television show with no apparent way to recoup its costs. ABC had only agreed to pay $50,000 for a first showing and $25,000 per repeat showing. Man in Space was 48 minutes long without commercials. Walt introduced the show and then handed it off to director Ward Kimball. The show began with a history of rocketry using both live action stock footage and new animation to show the progress. And then space expert Willie Lay then appeared to explain that the next logical step would be a multi-stage rocket that would go into orbit and send telemetry back to Earth with information from various experiments. Then space medicine specialist Heinz Haber discussed the possible effects of outer space on man's body. An animated man labeled Homo sapiens extraterrestrialis, or more commonly Spaceman, humorously demonstrated some of the challenges and dangers, and this segment and character was suggested by Walt during a story meeting. A good suggestion. <laughs> it was, because that, that was a humorous little little segment there. Uh, arguably the uh, best part of the episode. <laughs> I liked it in the beginning when you know when they when they showed action reaction with the dog sneezing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought that was cute. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, Dr. Werner von Braun described his proposal of a four-stage orbital rocket using an impressive model and charts. The show finished with a dramatic limited animation demonstration of what the launch of that rocket would be like and laid the foundation for the building of a space station and a trip to the moon. The episode was mostly narrated by actor Dick Tufeld, who may be best known as the voice of the robot in a 1960s television series, Lost in Space. At the end of the episode, Walt Disney introduced next week's Fantasyland episode of When Knighthood Was in Flower, and then a preview of The Littlest Outlaw ran after the credits. Quite a change (laughs) from the topic. Um, now, th- we said there were 15 million television sets in the United States at the time. Close to 42 million people watched the show in its debut airing. And this is an amazing number, even by today's standards. So, um, Man in Space was rerun on June 15th. 
On July 30th, President Eisenhower announced that the United States would launch Earth-circling satellites as part of the United States' participation in the International Geophysical Year, um, and it was called IGY. It has always been claimed that this show influenced the president's decision. However, according according to um, archivists at the Walt Disney Archives, there is no documentation either at the Walt Disney Archives nor at the Dwight D. Eisenhower Library that has yet been found to verify that President Eisenhower personally requested a copy of the film, although it is evident that he did see the show. Ward Kimball always associated President Eisenhower's satellite announcement to the first Man in Space episode, but Von Braun wanted to avoid any indication, quote, that I myself, through the vehicle of the Disney studio, am trying to get credit for more than I deserve, unquote. Biographer Eric Burgost has written that Von Braun understood the perils of going to the public for support of the space program. And he wrote, during the 50s, many people thought of Von Braun as some sort of science fiction hero who for the most part was dreaming of big space conquests and who spent most of his time on Walt Disney television shows. Some high priests of science were, of course, snobbish enough to frown on all this loud glamour, unquote. Another author has written that the Walt Disney documentaries and the Collier's articles made Von Braun a space nut or a space hero. In 1958, one Von Braun supporter lamented the discouraging spectacle of hard-headed and reputable scientists calling the latest proposal of Dr. Werner Von Braun to send a man 150 miles into space a circus stunt. Ernst Stuhlinger confirms that Von Braun was aware of being criticized for promoting space outside of previously established circles, but he adds that Von Braun's desire to see man travel into space meant convincing scientists, industry, politicians, and in particular the public. He fought on all fronts, each in its own language. That was his genius, said Stuhlinger. In March 1955, the American Rocket Association, ARS, held its largest ever regional meeting in Los Angeles. The ARS, founded in 1930, is an organization devoted to the challenges of rockets and space flights and holds yearly meetings. As part of the entertainment for the meeting, more than 600 people were invited to tour Disneyland and then participate in a special screening of Man in Space, Whilst the members overall enjoyed the film, some were disturbed by the prominence of German rocket scientists, especially with World War II still fresh in their minds of von Braun's V-2 rocket attacks of England. The International Astronautical Federation, or IAF, founded in 1951 and composed of members from 58 countries of the world, showed Walt Disney's Man in Space during the August 1955 Sixth Congress of the IAF in Copenhagen. 
The receptive audience was enthused by the theories of experts, especially Willie Lay and Werner von Braun's concepts that were brought to life by the skills of Disney artists. Amongst the viewers of Man in Space were Leonid Ivan, Ivan oh dear lord, me and names, Ivanovich Sedoff and Cairo Fedorovich Ogordinikov. I apologize to our Russian listeners. The first Soviets to attend the IAF Congress, they asked about barring the film for use in the Soviet Union, both to show American interest in manned space flight, as well as to promote their own space research. Ivanovich Sedov wrote to the president of the International Astronautical Federation to request a copy of the film. He wrote, if the Disney studio supplies us with one copy of the film on whatever terms it may put, it will make considerably for the cause of promoting our contract. Walt flatly turned him down, recalled Kimball in an interview. I asked him why. He said, well, they, the Russian government, borrowed a print of Snow White back in the late 1930s and were going to keep it for just two weeks. Ten years later, we got it back all scratched up with Russian titles on it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. Walt never forgot anything. In an effort to recoup some of the costs of making the episode, Man in Space was edited down to 33 minutes and released to theaters as a documentary short subject in 1956, along with the feature film Davy Crockett and the River Pilots, which was a compilation of the final two Davy Crockett television episodes. Man in Space was nominated for an Academy Award in a documentary short subject, but lost to the true story of the Civil War. Even though audiences had seen the full episode on their small black-and-white television sets at home, they were eager to see it again in vivid technicolor on a large movie screen. I can bet. I mean, watching it on Disney+, Plus, even, you know, I, I watched it right before we, we started recording this episode, and it just... It looks good on a 55-inch screen mm-hmm. TV. I can imagine seeing this on in a movie theater at the height of, you know, space craze and, and everything. I know that technically that's more 60s, but still at this time, like, I I, I totally get it. It would, it would be cool seeing it in theaters. I know. Wouldn't it be great if, like, the El Capitan in Hollywood, like, ran all three of the episodes I, in a special screen? I would, I'd fly down there to go to it. Yeah, if I was in town, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I flew down just to see, uh, you know, um, Sleeping Beauty in the, you know, s- s- the wide, you know, it was the first time they'd shown it in ages, you know, in the wide format. Mm-hmm. You know, because all the others, you know, the, the ends were cut off. Yeah, that full cinemascope. Yeah, yeah, it was gorgeous, just gorgeous. In the Los Angeles Herald and Express, writer Scholler Bangs wrote about Man in Space after it first aired. He wrote, Walt Disney may be America's secret weapon for the conquest of space. Apparently, and quite by accident, he has discovered the trigger that may blast loose this country's financial resources and place the stars and stripes of the United States aboard the first inhabited Earth satellite. 
Disney's immediate achievement with the aid of this triumvirate of space authorities is the suggestion that space travel is no longer a wild dream, that it is so near that we can practically feel the Earth tremble under the rocket blast of Von Braun's spaceship. Man in Space is believable, and Disney has close to 100,000 Americans believing, half of the voting population of the USA, and probably reached two impressive conclusions. It can be done, and let's get on with it. A scientist from Caltech told reporters, After what I've seen, I suggest the government turn its guided missile program over to Disney. However... Not everyone was a fan of the futuristic show. According to Walt, Lord Kimball, Walt said after Man in Space aired that his wife was a little bored by it. So, you know, even though the the Man in Space series aired back in the 50s, you know, you I watch it today and I am amazed by how accurate their predictions were about what we accomplished in the 60s with, you know, our, our, you know, Mercury and Apollo programs. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, even uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of comedy in the middle section, of course, when uh, when you have that mid-century modern uh, animated style of the man in space and you know, a lot of the concepts that they were talking about in that portion were done to make you laugh. But at the same time, it, a lot of it rang true of what the experience would be like of being in space. But uh, for sure, the last segment, the last animation based around what Von Braun was talking about. I mean, it's he had that planned out. He knew what space travel was going to look like and i mean even the the contraption that they came up with that astronauts would be in was essentially the precursor to what our space shuttle ended yep, up being exactly. later on so mm-hmm. it's even though their initial thought of what it would be like what vehicle they would actually ride into space ended up being wrong in the long run they still ended up being correct. We were just able to make it to the moon in a different fashion and make it up into orbit in a different way. But it's for the most part, I mean, it's looking at it as this is an entertainment company that made a, a movie about this for them to to take the time to get people involved that that knew what they were talking about and and had a good idea around it to make what was most realistic. Like they. They, they did a good job. You can't argue that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I've watched it three times. I've watched it previously and watched it three times um, prepping for this episode. And, you know, every time I watched it, there was some little nugget I got out of it that I'd somehow missed or, you know, some, something in the animation that, you know, I didn't pick up on before. So it's... Definitely rewatchable series, yeah. and I and, I, mm-hmm. I just love the animation for for exploring those different styles. You know, as you you said, the last the last animation in this case for Man in Space uh, about 
you know what what the four step rocket would look like and astronauts being in the actual shuttle style vehicle like that is it is very very serious it's very different from from your typical disney animation and but it's still fascinating to watch and see see the realism that is is put into that and it is such like it just screams 50s and and then Mm -hmm. even on the flip side the the man the man in space portion like that is that even screams 50s more that is like that is my favorite style of mid-century animation like it just it 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 almost feels like the equivalent of going to the drive-in and seeing the animated portions that they would play in between movies on that. Like, it's just, it is such a good style. So I, I can watch that over and over again, just to appreciate the details in the animated portions, not even listening to what they're actually discussing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. Well, I hope that uh, if you've watched the episode, I hope that we've been able to enhance it for you and make you appreciate, help you to appreciate it um, even more, knowing some of the details that went into the making of Man in Space. And if you haven't watched it yet, I hope that this will encourage you to um, watch it. So, But now we're going to travel from soaring through space to soaring through time with This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig. We're at the end of August. I'm just stunned. You know, I say that every week now. Yeah. I mean, this year just has gone by so fast. And and has been so dreadful. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) <laughs> for, for for pretty much everybody in the world. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, with this pandemic and then for me personally with all my surgeries and stuff. But um anyway. But but here we are, heading into the fall season. Although we're in the upper nineties, so fall is is <laughs> seems so far away. But I'm gonna start out with August thirtieth. The first comic strip entirely devoted to this Disney character debuted in newspapers on August 30th, 1936. Prior to this, the character has only appeared in the Silly Symphony Sunday pages. What character is this? I'm going to guess Donald Duck since he uh, is such popular with uh, the comic strips. Mm-hmm. That is an excellent guest. You are guess. You are correct. It's Donald Duck. And Donald will get his own daily strip in 1938. You're off to a good start. Good, good. Okay. August 31st. A Disney executive who started as a Disneyland cast member on opening day in July 1955 retired after 39 years on August 31st, 1994. He's vice president of Walt Disney Attractions. This person's family originally owned and lived on 10 acres of the Orange Grove covered property, which was purchased by Walt Disney for Disneyland in 1954. What is this executive's name? I I do know about him, but I cannot think of his name off yeah, the top this, of my head. This is a highly respected name for us Disneylanders. Ron Dominguez. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just wasn't coming. 
Yeah. And of course, you know, there's the famous Dominguez palm, that large palm tree near the queue. Uh, but that was, I think his mother asked that it be preserved, asked Walt. I think that's the story because it's huge now. But according to Ron, where he believes his house sat, um, when you're in, when you're, you're on the dock of the jungle cruise and you look across, and you see, you know, there's there's more land over there. Um, there's a couple of palm trees. And he thinks the house was there in between those. That's crazy. Yeah. And the land extended, like, you know, all the way to Rivers of America and, and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But, um, but Mr. Dominguez will be inducted as a Disney legend in 2000. Okay, on September 1st. This parade street show ended its run at Disneyland on September 1st, 1997. It had debuted last May. What was its name? I, I believe this is the uh, the often hated upon Light Magic Parade. You are correct. It was billed as a replacement for the 24-year-old Main Street Electrical Parade. You know, it's... This parade was like, you know, when, you, when it, it was, it was on the rebound. Like, you know, when you break up with somebody <laughs> and then you start dating again, that, that relationship is always doomed. Always. This, whatever came after the Main Street Electrical Parade was doomed. <laughs> so, and then, um, in my 60 years of Disneyland series, I talk about just, the horror of this parade, but how rather than in Walt's day where they were, they didn't, they wouldn't open until they were ready because it was all about the show here. They were date driven. They had to open by a certain date. They printed the merchandise with the date on it when the show wasn't even close to being ready. And when it rolled out, it wasn't ready. Now, if they had a few more weeks, maybe it would have been better and it would have had a better shot. But, I don't know, a parade on the rebound of the Main Street Electrical Parade is going to it's going to have a rough time. If Paint the Magic ever comes back, I don't know where it is at the moment, but um, whatever follows that is going to have a rough go of it, is my prediction. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, I, I think Paint the Night's just going to be... You know, they, we'll we'll see it pop back up at Disneyland every now and then. That's where it needs to to stay. It <clears> works so well, what, whether or not it's at California Adventure or or Disneyland Park. I think it just it's a perfect parade for that coast. I don't. It is. I honestly don't. I I don't. I'm one of those people. I don't want it to come over to Walt Disney World ever. Mm. I. It would be great if it was a temporary thing, just like as a hey, if you if you would bother traveling to Disneyland when this parade's running, you'd get to see it. But I don't want to see it here permanently. It just to me, it fits in with those parks. It is it has a California style to it, the same way that you know is is our Festival of Fantasy is a special parade, but mm-hmm. I don't think Festival of Fantasy would fit well rolling down the streets of Disneyland, and I don't. I think the same would go uh, vice versa with that. Like when Sensational was was a parade, I don't think that would had the same impact in 
in Magic Kingdom as it did in Disneyland Park. It's these parades sometimes are designed to be feel special in these spaces. So, uh, yeah, I uh, light magic then. Definitely, uh, I wish I would have been able to see it just from how I hear people talk about it. But oh, it's a, you, I it mean, was perfect horrible. description from what you say. And I yeah. wish they would stop putting dates on everything and let just just let stuff open when it's ready and not hit mm-hmm. these timetables. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So um, I was going to say something and I forgot. Oh yeah, I, I watch your video. Since, you know, now on my smart TV, I can bring up YouTube and all that. I, I watch a lot of your videos over and over again. But I, Paint the Magic is probably my number one. And with Illuminations, a close second. Because uh, you did a great job um, filming that parade. Thank you. So, And I have my special place in California Adventure where I like to sit and watch it. But I'm not telling anybody what mm-hmm. it is. Oh, I think I told Mary Jo. But anyway. All right. <clears throat> September 2nd, Disney's long-running television series airs for the last time on NBC under the name The Wonderful World of Disney on September 2nd, 1979. Seven days later, it will debut under a new title. What is the name, the new name of this series? Mm, I'm actually, I'm not sure what it went to after that. They just became a little more concise. Disney's Wonderful World, which I don't particularly like that title, but it's the fifth title since the show's 1954 debut. So, Craig, how many can you name? Uh, Four, five, six, (laughs) seven. You know, it's Disneyland, Walt Disney Presents, Wonderful World of Color, Wonderful World of Disney. Um, And then, like, what's it even called now? And now it's when it on it when it appears on a whim. It's the wonderful world of Disney. So back to that, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. But it's, it's screwing me up thinking yeah. too. And it's also was just called um, Walt Disney, the Disney Sunday Movie, the Magical World of Disney. It's had all kinds. Of yeah, names. Magical World of Disney too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, September third. An Imagineer best known for his brilliant special effects in a haunted mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean attractions was born in Shanghai, China on September 3rd, 1910. His father was an American consul. What is the name of this Imagineer? Hmm. Well, okay. So I'm just going to have to guess on it because I don't know when you're throwing me even though I know he's clearly American because you said American consul, but I, I don't think I ever knew this uh, Shanghai China fact with it, but um, I, I think it would probably be Gracie. Absolutely. Yale Gracie. Now, Master Gracie, whose name can be found on tombstones outside the Disneyland and Walt Disney World mansions, gets his name from Yale. Uh, Gracie first worked as a layout artist on such features as Pinocchio and Fantasia before becoming a special effects and lighting artist in Walt Disney Imagineering, which was then called WED, with no special effects training other than his own hands-on experimentation. Yale worked as a research and development designer, creating many illusions for theme park attractions. He will be named a Disney legend in 1999. And when I when I saw that um, 
Shop Disney was releasing their, you know, their Halloween line, I went on to take a look and they had a Master Gracie, you know, tombstone to put out, you know, like in your front yard oh. for Halloween. Well, I have the Madame Leota one. So I thought, okay, I got to have the set. When I, it was already sold out. And they said limited to 10. I thought, why do you say, why do you have such a high number? Because you know they're all on eBay, but, um, our cast, mutual cast member friend that we talked about, I wrote him and, uh, that we talked about in a previous episode and he um, found it in one of the shops for me. He was there as a, he was in the park as a guest. So he had it shipped to me. So I'm waiting for it. Anyway. Okay. September 4th. Disney's newest theme park had its grand opening on September 4th, 2001. What is the name of this park? Ooh, I'm guessing that would have to be Disney Sea. Excellent. That's right. At the Tokyo Disneyland Resort. It's featured over 20 attractions. It is Disney's second theme park in Japan and the ninth in the world. The park has a nautical theme and is broken up into seven distinct areas. The park's two iconic symbols are the Disney Sea Aquasphere, a water fountain located in the entrance plaza, and the giant volcano, Mount Prometheus, located in the center of the park. Also on this day, Tokyo Disney Resort celebrates the grand opening of the first hotel to be built inside a Disney park in Japan, Tokyo Disney Sea Hotel Miracosta. And, you know, when I went, again, with Dreams Unlimited Travel, another exclusive trip we had, we went to Japan and China, and we went to all the Asian Disney theme parks. Um, I know some folks weren't as impressed with Disney Sea. I love it. I just think this is a wonderful park. And, um, Craig, when you get the chance to go there someday, I think you're going to love this park. Yeah, you know, it's not Disneyland Paris, but... It's amazing just because it's so different from the castle parks. I honestly, until people from that trip got back, I had never heard a single person say that they disliked Disney Sea. In fact, everyone who I ever met who had a chance to go up until that point said that it was their favorite Disney park. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sometimes uh, the. The Disney dreams, where sometimes we're just weird people. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes things just don't click with people. I completely understand that. You know, because um, some people are more into the fantasy of the castle parks and the fantasy of Epcot. There's a lot of fantasy in Epcot as you go through World Showcase and all that. You know, Animal Kingdom is a little more realistic, so that doesn't click with a lot of people. I think Epcot's much hotter than Animal Kingdom. I don't. I don't understand that. You know, people saying that. I find walking in Epcot on a hot day very unpleasant, not at Animal Kingdom. So, you know, it's just some parks click with people and some don't. So, you know, I, you know, I, but, but so far, there's not been a Disney, oh, there has been a Disney park I haven't liked. Um, Dis, the, the Disney Walt Studios. Disney Studios. Yeah, That's say. just a sad, sad, sad park. You have to visit it, but you don't have to like it. Yeah. There was, like, practically nothing there except Ratatouille. The Ratatouille, that area, is wonderful. It's it's a shame they're not bringing the restaurant over. 
I'm hoping maybe they'll expand someday. I don't know how much land they have left in that area, but I hope they'll expand it someday and put in the restaurant because it's a nice companion to the attraction. Anyway, September 5th, which Magic Kingdom attraction at Walt Disney World quote, quotes temporarily closed at the end of the day on September 5th, 1994? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this was somewhere around when 20,000 Leagues started having its issues. You're absolutely right. This has been open since October 14, 1971. The attraction was held inside one of 14 submarines, each with a capacity of 38 passengers. It was based on Disney's first big-budget live-action 1954 movie, which starred Kirk Douglas and James Mason. And, of course, the film was inspired by Jules Verne's classic novel, a a must-read. I read it when I was, like, nine or something. Um... Almost two years later, Disney will officially call the attraction forever closed. Some of the submarines will be sunk off Castaway Key, Disney's private island in the Caribbean. So, um, I loved this attraction. I thought it was so cool because it was based on the film. Yeah, I, I mean, I know there's plenty of good videos out there still to watch of it to take it back. I just wish I would have been a little bit older towards one of my last times riding it so that way I could have an even more vivid memory than I I have of it. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I rode it, I was a teenager and then I rode it a few times, but um, it was cool. It's sad that it's not there just because the lagoon and all that adds so much, you know, to the landscape of the park. Anyway, you did really well. Thank you. This week. Well, I hope that, you know, in our next installment of our Look at the Man in Space series, you know, we examine the second episode originally titled Man and the Moon when it debuted on December 28th, 1955. And it was renamed Tomorrow the Moon when it was rerun in 1959. Now, this episode is not yet available on Disney+. Plus. It is available on the Disney Treasure series Tomorrowland, and it's on YouTube. And so, um, Craig, I, I sent you the YouTube link. Is that something we can include in our show notes so our listeners can watch it in advance? Absolutely. Okay. I don't know when we're going to get to it, so you have some time, because we have a very exciting episode next week that you don't want to miss. And um, we well, don't want to miss any of our episodes, but I think next week you're really going to like. Of course. <laughs> uh, just, just as a hint, if you haven't watched the... Um, documentary Howard by Don Hahn on Howard Ashman. Watch it before next week. Okay. There, I did use some reference material in prepping for this. Um, a book, The Vault of Vault, Outer Space Edition by Jim Corcus. He also gave a lecture at the Walt Disney Family Museum several years ago. And I did draw from my notes also from that lecture. Um, some articles, online articles on the NASA website There's an article, The Disney Von Braun Collaboration and Its Influence on Space Exploration. Uh, This Day in Disney History, they had an article, Disney and Space Travel. Animating Space, Disney Science and Empowerment by J.P. Talot. And The Walt Disney Treasures Tomorrowland, Disney and Space and Beyond by Rodney 
Oh, another name that I won't be able to pronounce. Figurito. I'm sorry. But Craig will have all these links in our show notes. So um, yep. you won't have to worry if I mispronounced all these names. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network, as well as Twitter and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Okay, all of you who are liking my personal Facebook page, where I have almost no Disney content on it, alrighty, I have changed <laughs> my Facebook page that has Connecting with Walt and other Disney content on it. I've changed the title. You want to like Michael Bowling Dash connecting with Walt. So if you've friended me on my other page, go over to Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt and like that page. Okay. So I changed the name just for you all. All right. On Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.